Live from the Bradley Basden WEGL studio in the Harold Melton Student Center, this is Compact Discourse. Alex Houston writing solo today from the studio, from the Harold Melton Student Center at 8 a.m. Clearly, my co-hosts were a little worn down by the weekend and fall break because it wasn't great for a lot of Auburn fans out there and wasn't great for a lot of Panthers fans out there either. And I'm sure those two seem to overlap, at least in my experience. But this is Compact Discourse, and... I'm going to set the record straight right here, ladies and gentlemen. Sure, we have Auburn Auburn football to talk about, and these last two episodes have been Auburn football therapy. But let's forget all about that for a second, because contrary to the standard around the Plains and contrary to the standard around Auburn University, Auburn football might not be the biggest story going on on the Plains right now. That may belong to coach Brent Crouch and Auburn volleyball and what a run they are on right now if you haven't been paying attention you better start paying attention because this team ladies and gentlemen they're good this year they're going to be even better in the future and there's a lot to be excited about in Neville Arena I believe somebody said it not on the air a few weeks ago but I happen to agree with it that coach Crouch coach Jeff Graba and head coach Bruce Pearl are all basically in a race to get the court of Neville Arena named after them who will it be? I honestly couldn't tell you. Probably Bruce Pearl, obviously, at this point. But Jeff Graba's got his gymnastics team posed for a, posed for a national championship run again. Auburn volleyball has rebuilt the entire program in a matter of years when it really should have taken almost a decade to recover from what happened. Now, ladies and gentlemen, if you don't know what's going on at Auburn volleyball, let me break it down for you very simply. Auburn head coach Brent Crouch, who was brought in following the disastrous 2019 uh, campaign from Rick Knoll, Crouch was brought in. He coached during the weird COVID year when SEC volleyball split between a fall season and a spring season. Auburn volleyball only played eight matches that year in the fall and then just forfeited the spring section because in that fall they went 0-8 and did not win a set. Not a, not a game. Not not even not even you know did not win or did not have a three to two match or a three to one. They did not win a set. They got swept eight consecutive matches, which that does not happen unless your team is well struggling to say the least. So they do all that, and then they come in last year with a very I'll say this a very Bruce Pearl like approach to a rebuild. A lot of transfers. Some big-time seniors that had stuck around, like Tatum Shipe, some really great players. And last year, it was a major step forward for them. They were 13-15, and 15, still struggling in conference play at 5-13. and 13. But mind you, the 2019 season, the year before Crouch got here, Auburn was 1-17 and 17 in conference play. They were terrible. So last year, 13-15, and 5-13 in conference, ended the year on a five-match losing streak, but hey, they were 11 and 7 at home, 2 and 8 on the road, not where you wanted to be, but there were signs that this team was taking the step forward. I got to broadcast a couple of their games last year, and I saw it first and foremost that this was a team that was scratching and clawing for in every single match. Sometimes it was just a simple talent gap that led to some of those losses down the stretch. So with all that in mind, you come in this year, right? The 2022 campaign, you got 9 freshmen on the roster. You're one Major upperclassman Rebecca Rath, who set the all-time record for kills in a season in Auburn, has now left the team. 
Uh, we heard him broke that news on the broadcast a few a few weeks ago. So you've got that information. Got a lot of freshmen. Coach Crouch, even in his post-game and pre-game interviews, was talking about how young this team was, how he was just having to experiment with different lineups to figure out which group meshed the most together. And ladies and gentlemen, they are 16-1. and They are 5-0 at home, 5-1 on the road, 6-0 at neutral sites. They actually have the most neutral site games of any SEC volleyball team up until this point. And more importantly, they are 6-0 in those neutral site games. Most with the exception of Alabama, who also had six. So you've got all that. And Auburn's 5-1 and one in conference. 5-1 and one in conference. In the last three seasons combined, they won just six matches out of 44 SEC matches. Six and 38 in conference in the last three years, ladies and gentlemen. And now they are 5-1 and one with a matchup with Missouri coming up. That's right. They play Missouri in Columbia on Saturday and Sunday, October the 15th and 16th. And Missouri's not a very good team. They're 7-7 seven and seven overall, 0-4 in conference play. And a lot of people are pumping the brakes on this, saying, oh, well, you know, I brought it up to people, and they said, oh, well, have they played Kentucky? Have they played Florida? And the answer is no, they haven't. And admittedly, that will be a great challenge when they, when they have to play Kentucky. Mind you that Auburn is 7-37 and all-time against Kentucky. They have lost 19 straight matches dating back to Halloween of 2010. So that is certainly another bridge to be crossed for this team, another step to be made. And who knows how that game with how those matches with Kentucky go. They'll both be in Lexington, which is certainly not in the favor of the Auburn Tigers. But just ignore for a second what's happening with the fact that they haven't played Kentucky and Florida. Yes, they have not played the other top teams in the SEC. If you look at the SEC, it's a three-way tie for first place. Auburn's at 5-1. and one, Florida's at 5-1. and one, Kentucky is also at 5-1. and one. And that is, again, a very fair point. Who knows how those matches might go, and those will be a great metric to be able to tell you where Auburn Volleyball is because Auburn Volleyball is 2-44 and 44 all-time against Florida. They have won two matches ever, both at home. Two matches ever. At one point, they had a losing streak of 32 consecutive from 1990 to 2015. That is an unheard of statistic in in most sports. Truly, especially with a, with a, with a team that will play sometimes multiple times a year, and still you've got those 32 32 straight matches lost in a 25 year period there. So yes, that is very fair to bring up the fact that, and I think Coach Crouch knows it as well as anybody. He, he's, he's very, very aware of where his team is and where they can be, where they need to be, and he's talked about that with our, with our broadcast before. He's talked about the youth of this team, and the youth of this team is, well, again, let's just talk it through right now. You go along this roster on AuburnTigers.com, and, I mean, you've got freshman, freshman, sophomore, freshman, freshman, junior Jackie Barrett. Jordan Sinis, a sophomore. Bell Zimmerman, a freshman. Chelsea Harmon and Jackie Barrett might be their most experienced players. In fact, they are. And Chelsea Harmon's a transfer. And she has fit into this system like a glove right now. And she has been excellent. And then, of course, you've got what, in my opinion, is one of the best young stars in SEC volleyball in Kendall Kemp. 
six foot six, a force to be reckoned with on the floor. Coach Crotch got to be excited about her and about the youth of this team. And again, the narratives may change whenever they play Florida and whenever they play Kentucky. But right now, you've got Missouri this weekend. You got Tennessee next Friday. That's October 21st, Friday, in Neville Arena. I expect a packed out crowd at Neville. It'll be a no Auburn football games that weekend at all. It'll be the bye week. Now's a chance to really go and see Auburn volleyball for what they're putting on the floor. And they're putting on a great, exciting product. And then you've got Florida that Wednesday, 7 p.m. inside Neville Arena. The crowds have been unbelievable. Estimated capacity for Auburn Volleyball is about 2,000. It's looked like it's been close to that. You've even had seats in the upper bowl area, which I didn't think was possible. I, I thought they only sold seats to the lower bowl in the student section, but apparently they're expanding. Good for them on that one. And you've got this team. It's just a lot to be excited about for Brent Crouch and Auburn Volleyball and a lot to be excited about on the plains regards to that. And Auburn Soccer, Auburn Soccer gets a huge win yesterday over Mississippi State. They've been struggling to score right now. And that I think Karen Hopp was aware of that, but their defense has been tenacious, and they finally got a couple SEC wins under their belt, trying to fight for that SEC tournament spot down the stretch. It's going to be a close one going down these next few games, but an exciting one. Auburn soccer and Auburn volleyball, there's a lot to be excited about. Equestrian just started. They beat Georgia in Athens 11-8. to Obviously, Equestrian, multi-time national champions, was one of the best programs in Auburn honestly, considering how quickly they've been built by head coach Greg Williams. And the fact is, you know, this is a testament to, or this is a question to all the Auburn fans out there that may be listening to this, because Auburn, for a long time, has referred to it themselves as the everything school. Auburn fans have often called themselves that. They've always said, well, you know, there was the jokes last year that Auburn fans invented going to gymnastics. That was an Alabama fan's retort to Auburn fans showing up in droves and making a big deal about it. And no, Auburn is not the first school to support their sports that aren't football. No, they're not. They're not going to be the last either. Like this is, but the, the the point is, Auburn volleyball has basically, compared to what where they were in twenty in twenty twenty, come back from the dead in a year and a half essentially. And they're sixteen and one right now. They've already won more matches, three more than they won all of last year. So the question is, right? Can these Auburn fans show up? Sure, Auburn football is not going well. We're going to talk. I'm going to talk about that after this commercial break, very briefly. But you've got other great Auburn sports that are exciting and that are playing very, very well. Ladies and gentlemen, you may not understand all the rules of volleyball, but volleyball is a very exciting and fun sport to watch. It's very fast-paced. This team has a system that is very aggressive, and there's never a dull moment. Honestly. They're incredibly talented. They're incredibly athletic. Akasha Anderson, every time she goes for a kill, the student section behind the broadcasters just ooze and ahs because she sends it through the floorboards. It's insane, mind you. But this is a great, great team that is a lot to be excited about. And again, that Florida-Kentucky stretch, again, they play Florida-Kentucky, Florida and Kentucky, Kentucky twice. That'll be three matches in roughly five days. That could be a reality check for Auburn. It very well could be, and I think I think it's important to prepare for that because it's going to cost people to pump the brakes, and that's fair depending on how the matches go. But remind yourselves that, one, Florida and Kentucky are the premier programs in the SEC, and at this current point, Auburn is tied with, with them for the lead in the SEC. If you had told Auburn volleyball fans two years ago that they'd be tied with Kentucky and Florida 
in the SEC standings through five games, six games, they would have told you that, oh, they, did Florida and Kentucky have a down year? Because that, that's where Auburn Volleyball was, and they're not right now. And again, this is a young, young team. There is no seniors on this team. This team is not going to graduate anybody. They're going to be back next year again with more freshmen. Coach Crouch is bringing in great recruiting classes. And he even, ta- he even talked to me last year about the abilities, about how Auburn's SEC network deals have afforded the team better recruiting opportunities because they can say, hey, you know, we can't negotiate NIL deals for you because you can at Auburn. The coaches cannot. But we're on ESPN all the time, and that's got to mean something for exposure for these players. And I think it worked to get that great freshman class. And now you've got that handled. You've got your first great class. And now you've got your first really good team here at Auburn. And again, who knows what happens for the, next, for the rest of the season. They've got a tough road ahead. It's all SEC, a lot of good SEC teams. That Tennessee to Kentucky stretch are all really, really good teams. Tennessee is 4-2. They're one game behind Auburn. Again, Auburn's big win over Mississippi State is really paying off since Mississippi State is 4-2 and two in conference. That loss to LSU hurts, but you can't win them all. And more importantly, that was, that was a game on the road. But right now, Auburn volleyball is playing, and there's a lot to be excited about. And I said it earlier, and I'll say it again. This is not about coping with the state of Auburn, Auburn football and going to another sport. I was excited about Auburn volleyball last year, again, I can tell you, because I saw a lot of toughness and grit in that team. And, of course, Rebecca Rath is one of the best offensive players, if not the best offensive player, to ever step foot in the, on the plains, to ever step foot in Auburn Arena slash Neville Arena now. So you've got that. But I, I was excited about where this team could go and seeing some of their matches this year. You know, I got a chance to call the Alabama A&M and Alabama State games with Aiden Kowalski. And sure, those were two, you know, Division AA schools that could not really compete with Auburn. But there was a lot to be excited about then. And look at where it's gone now. They're 5-1 and one in conference play. And it's been an incredible run for Auburn volleyball and I can't wait to see where this team goes next because I really believe that they have a lot of talent and there's a lot to be excited about and again ladies and gentlemen if you are listening they play Tennessee at Auburn or in Neville Arena on October 21st then they play Florida again in Neville Arena on October 22nd two incredibly fun matches that could be coming up you won't want to miss those and this is Compact Discourse on Weagle 91.1 FM Inside the Bradley Basin WEGL studio on Weagle 91.1 FM. But if you're listening, you already knew that. This is Compact Discourse. I'm Alex Houston going it solo today. I don't know what happened to my guests. I guess uh, the, you know, maybe Noah was partying too hard after Max Verstappen won uh, the Formula One season again. Or uh, Griggs Blankenberg did not take the Panthers' loss yesterday too well. I know he was in Charlotte for that game. I thought some prayers with Griggs for having to watch that game. I didn't have it easy this weekend either, by the way. But we're not going to talk about that until much, much later. Let's talk about Auburn football for a moment. It's what we've all been waiting for, I'm sure. It's what, you know, I was talking about all over the weekend with my friends. 
I had to cover the game for uh, my internship at 1819 News, which was a lot of fun. Honestly, it's been a lot of fun. But having to watch that game, not so much. Somebody asked me that, that evening after the game, well, was Auburn expected to lose by any more than that? No, not really. The spread was 28. They lost by 32. Right? That was not that was not the issue, and that will not be the issue. It, when people look back at that game, the issue is not the fact that they lost by what the spread said, honestly. I did not expect them to stand a chance in that game down the stretch. I figured they would just run out of gas against a team at home because that, that's what happens when you're playing a highly ranked opponent at home. The road underdog tends to just run out of gas. That's, that's happened who knows how many years in a row with so many teams. It's just the norm at this point. The problem was this was once again a complete and total failure of system is what I called it. And what I mean by that is if if Auburn I, – I, going into the season, I believe that Auburn just did not have the talent necessary to compete in the SEC. I got shouted down over that many times. Wrong or right, that's what happened. And I think – I believed they just didn't have the talent to compete. I believe that Gus Malzahn did not leave the program with a lot of talent, and Brian Harson did not do a good job of replacing a lot of that talent. And do with that information what you will, that's what I thought. And so going into the season, what were my expectations? I was hoping they'd be 4-2 by this point. I was hoping they could beat LSU or Penn State. I didn't think they were going to beat Georgia. But I expected here, – here's the thing. Here's the difference. A team with bad talent but good coaching has different problems every week, right? Because, like, say you if you don't have, if you don't have good talent, like you've got a bad field goal kicker, right? You, your coaching is not going to magically fix your field goal kicker if he's not very good at it. We've seen that with Alabama because Nick Saban's one of the best coaches, if not the best coach ever, and they've had bad kickers for a long time, right? Sometimes that just happens. So if it's a different problem every week like that, then okay. Issue's not a talented team, but Brian Harson's doing his best on the recruiting trail to get people back. He's doing his best in the transfer portal, whatever. But the problem is, through six weeks, this team has had the same problems over and over and over again on repeat. It has not changed. There has been no adjustment to it at all. Which, of course, as Brian Matthews so eloquently put it on, on Twitter on Saturday, the team is not exactly known for making its... Uh, adjustments in, in halftime, so why would they make adjustments during the season? Great point. And that comes down to coaching. Like the LSU game, here's the thing is, the LSU game really broke a lot of people, and I think this is a very fair point that they made. The team is talented enough to go up 17-0. So if you lose that lead, it's not because you're not talented. It's because you can't coach. And there you have it, right? There, there you have it. And again, with this, it's the fact that Rick Neuheisel brought it up during the broadcast a lot, and it was a fair, fair point. He said that Robbie Ashford was not their planned quarterback. It was supposed to be T.J. Finley, Zach Calzada, Robbie Ashford in third string, which third string quarterbacks rarely see the field. This year, quarterbacks are dropping like flies everywhere, so apparently that's, you know, normally not supposed to see the field, but now they might. And that was the plan going in. But first of all, Zach Calzada's injury, the rumors about that were rampant all offseason season. So, are we to assume that Auburn did not know the status of his shoulder injury? Are we to assume that something went wrong in communication-wise, where despite the fact that Calzada never played, and his shoulder surgery was only announced, you know, last week, essentially, are we to assume that 
Are we to assume that he kept that in the dark, that the coaching staff did not know that he was not going to play? Okay, so then you got that one. And then that excuse works for the first two weeks when Robbie Ashford is playing. Well, they didn't prepare a game plan for him. Okay, it's been six weeks, guys. It has been six games. And you didn't have a game plan in place? Zach Calzada never saw the field against Mercer or San Jose State. So we at least know up to a week before that game, at minimum, they plan to play Robbie and not play Zach Calzada. So Carson told everybody. Carson told everybody that he planned to play two quarterbacks, that he's run two quarterback systems before. He said, we'll see what happens. We'll let guys compete. He also said that about Zach Calzada, but as we saw, he was injured. Couldn't play. So you've got that information. So Neuheisel brings up, they can't play in that system. It's been six weeks. There has to be something. And the fact of the matter is, we've seen that this offense, this team, has no plan to work around the deficiencies on the team. Now, again, the offensive line is terrible. It might be one of the worst offensive lines I've ever seen play. Ladies and gentlemen, just look up that video from Pablo Escobar on Twitter if you want of Alec Jackson just checking off a defender to nobody. Just letting him run right past him to Robbie Ashford. One of the worst techniques I've ever seen from offensive line was that play. Because Brandon Council, the center, was then aware of the mistake and had to run back and get him. And then, of course, Keontre Jones, who people have been clamoring for, whiffed a handful of times. The offensive line just has no good technique. I don't know if that's coaching. A lot of people think it is by Will Friend. I don't know if it's just the fact that they've got bad players on that front. But the point is, you've got that, and you've shown no ability to adjust around that. They're still running in between the tackles. They're still running zone plays, getting their offensive linemen out in space, despite the fact that they're not very good in space. Are you telling me that you can't convert it to a read? Because here's the thing. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a guy sitting in the booth, and I'm, not in the, and I'm not in the coach's booth. I'm in the press box, or I'm in the studio. You know, I don't know the intricacies of running a football program like they do, and I'll admit that first and foremost. I'm not going to pretend that I know exactly what to do. But, for example, a read option system is known to help aid your offensive line because it forces the defense to freeze. That gives your offensive line a split second of advantage over them because they know what's happening. They know what their assignment is. Their assignment is just to block regardless of who keeps the ball running back or quarterback. And throughout the year, we have not seen any installation of that type of offense. We've seen quarterbacks sweep draws to the right or the left or quarterback draws to the middle. But most of the offense comes from Robbie Ashford scrambling on his own. He had 52 yards rushing. He led the team. Even though Stetson Bennett had more yards than any runner on the team. Because he had that 64-yard touchdown run. So the question then becomes, why have there not been made, not, not any adjustments made? Why has nothing really been done? And the question is because I think this coaching staff is just outmatched. Now again, I'm going to say this. Again, a lot of people will disagree with me. I'm probably going to write a column about it, and Justin Lee might tweet at me. I'm not going to lie. I, 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 at this point, because what I will say will directly contradict what he said, and that's fair, but that you know that's the nature of sports. Everybody has their own opinion on this. I think that Brian Harson and his staff is a failure. I'll say that. I'll admit it. This, this is a failure. This is a bad, bad hire, and it has not worked out. Do I believe a lot of things went wrong that set him up for failure? Yes, I do. Do I believe that what happened in February hurt him on the recruiting trail more than anything else? Yes, I do. It may have united his players, but 
if Auburn was doing bad, but recruiting-wise they were doing a lot better, this would be a whole different discussion. Because it's like, hey, look, maybe it is just talent because he's bringing in this great group. But we've heard the stories of coaches on the recruiting trail recruiting against Auburn by saying, don't go to Auburn because the head coach that you're committing to won't be there in a year. And that's true, he won't. Harson has been marked to be fired since February. I think we all knew that. No matter how you want to cut up what happened, I don't have an inside source in the information, so I can't pretend. I just know what other people have reported on that. I know that Philip Marshall said in his column that Auburn tried to look for a way to fire him for a cause, and when lawyers say it wouldn't hold up in court, Jay Gooch said we're going to keep him. So do with that information what you will. Alan Green leaves at the beginning of the season, before the season even starts. So he set it to fail in that way. Who knows what happens with the Austin Davis thing. I think Austin Davis was a great hire. And then it just imploded. I still don't know what happened. I still really don't know what happened there. And so then you've got Eric Keesaw, who was a wide receivers coach last year and clearly was not Harson's first choice on the offensive end. And I don't think he'd be his first choice at the end of the season either because the offense has been so lifeless. Ten points. They had a golden opportunity after that forced fumble on Georgia's first drive of the second half to get some points. They got the ball at the Georgia 19-yard line. They got seven yards and kicked a field goal. And when that happened, I knew they were not going to win the game because Georgia scored on the next drive and it was over. You cannot miss those kind of opportunities. Just like you can't, in a defensive battle, have the ball at your own 34 and run a fake punt with your tight end. I think John Samuel Shanker is a great, great asset. He has as sure hands as anybody on this roster. He's really, really good. He's a great mismatch for linebackers. But I think they think this guy is a lot faster than he is. And running a punt sweep with him, of all people, is a little strange. I don't really know why they did that. Oscar Chapman is that weapon. Keep playing defense. Maybe your defense would have gotten a turnover. They did at the start of the second half. But instead, you gave Georgia a short field and all the momentum. And then another special teams error gave Georgia a short field and all the momentum. And it was 14-0 at halftime. Brian Harson's days are numbered. Josh Dubb tweeted today, Auburn has only lost in Oxford three times, 1992, 2008, and 2012. Each time, the coach that lost there was fired. Pat Dye resigned, essentially. Tommy Tupperville fired in 2008. Gene Chizik also fired in 2012. If Auburn loses... To Ole Miss on Saturday, I find it very hard to believe that Harson's going to stick around. We're no longer in purgatory, any- purgatory anymore. I think it's just a matter of when, not if. And that's where Auburn football is at right now. And the question becomes, what do you do to fix this? How do you fix these problems? Because I'm not saying in support of Harson that all these problems are the reason it's gone so bad. But I believe that if the administration cannot get a uniform idea, if they cannot band together and pick one guy to back, then we're going to be right where we right where we were uh, right where we are 2 years from now. But we'll see what happens. This is Weagle 91.1 FM and this is Compact Discourse. We'll be back after this.
Back here live in the WEGL Bradley Basin studio. This is Compact Discourse on Weagle 91.1 FM. But then again, if you've been listening, you already knew that. I'm Alex Houston in the studio by myself. And you know what, guys? I think it's time for some college football scoreboard because enough about Auburn football for now. For now, at least. Let's talk about what hap- what's happening in the rest of college football. It was a crazy, crazy weekend. A lot of fun games to discuss right now. Michigan goes into Bloomington and takes down Indiana 31-10 after a close 10-10 halftime. TCU defeats college football's darling Kansas 38-31. Kansas started quarterback went down, but the backup... Jason Bean played well enough. Unfortunately, the Jayhawks could not get the win. Tennessee just dominated LSU in Death Valley at 11 a.m. Maybe that's why the, the Bayou Bengals don't play at the, in the morning. Mississippi State beat Arkansas very handily 40-17. What has happened to the Razorbacks? Cincinnati holds on to beat USF 28-24. The Bearcats trying to get another or another New Year's Six Bowl appearance. Oklahoma State beats Texas Tech in a close one. The Pokes are 5-0. UCLA beats Utah. How the heck are the Bruins 6-0? They won 42-32. Ohio State dominates Michigan State 49-20. The Spartans are 2-4 after signing Mel Tucker to that huge extension. Old Miss beat Vanderbilt 52-28 as expected. Arizona State pulls off an upset over Washington. What is it with coaches getting it together after firing their coaches? Or with teams getting it together after firing their head coaches? Clemson annihilates Boston College 31-3 in a game that was not close. Without Will Levis, Kentucky cannot survive, and they lose to South Carolina 24-14. Wake Forest annihilates Army 45-10. Kansas State in a close one over Iowa State. 10-9, Matt Campbell has vanished from the head coaching candidate discussions. Notre Dame in Las Vegas. Viva Las Vegas, 28-20 over BYU. USC over Washington State, 30-14. Lincoln Riley has the Trojans at 6-0. Alabama in a close one, 24-20 over Texas A&M. I'll admit that was a great game in primetime, but Jimbo Fisher once again threw away the game. NC State defeats Florida State 19-17 after Florida State goes for a touchdown while in field goal range? Who knows what the Seminoles are doing? And Oregon, another Pac-12 after dark masterpiece, beat Arizona 49-22. The Ducks are 5-0 since that horrible loss to Georgia to start the year. And that is your college football scoreboard. And man, oh man, a lot to discuss. I got a little tangled up a few times there. But again, the point with Arizona State, is that they fire Herm Edwards and they beat a ranked opponent? Mind you, I don't know if anybody's been paying attention to Georgia Tech, but Georgia Tech, since firing their coach, has won two straight, including defeating Pittsburgh. What on earth is happening in college football? Something is in the water. I just don't know what it is. But let's talk about Jimbo Fisher. Jimbo Fisher with the Encyclopedia of Play Calls with the world's largest playbook, coaching one of the most archaic offenses I've seen, gets an opportunity to beat Alabama in Bryant-Denny. That does not happen often. The last time was LSU in 2019, and before that, I believe it was Ole Miss in 2015. 
with Chad Kelly, of course, of all people. I don't know what it is with Alabama getting beaten in Bryant Denny by or beaten in the regular season by no name quarterbacks in Cam Newton and Joe Burrow, but Bo Wallace, Chad Kelly, Jeff not Jeff Garcia, Steven Garcia, Steven Garcia, mind you. Jordan Jefferson. Oh yeah. Whew. But you've got this team. AM gets a chance. They get pass interference in the end zone. So they go down to the three yard line. And what do they call but a play that ends up short of the end zone? The throw was short of the end zone. He didn't catch the ball, and it wasn't even a bad throw. But before you can say, oh, well, he went through his reads too quickly and um, went to the one guy short of the end zone, he stepped back, looked for a second, and immediately cut to his right, which implies that that was the man he was told to throw the ball to. And, oh, good Lord, Jimbo. I mean, it's just, it was a, a lot of people are saying this is a step forward for Texas A&M after some really bad games start the year, that bad loss to Mississippi State, the bad loss to App State. Here's the thing, though. Alabama, this was not a good performance by Alabama. They were 5 of 14 on third down. They had a backup quarterback because Bryce Young was out. They threw for only 111 yards, so they ran for 280. That's 5.6 yards of carry. They were one and five, one and three, one for three in the red zone. They had six penalties for 63, 73 yards, and four turnovers, three fumbles lost, and interception thrown. I don't know if that's what I would call a win. I think I would call that more of you should have beaten a team that had four turnovers and a backup quarterback. And of course, I believe did Jimbo actually say we're playing a backup quarterback too? I need to Google this. I'm looking it up right now, seeing if I can find anything. This is when I need a guest because then they can, you know, start talking for me. Did he actually? Let's see, I can't tell if it's if it's real or not. Is there is there a video of it? Okay, hold up. I'm clicking the link now. I'm trying to trying to get there. Didn't mean, didn't mean to pull up my phone. Okay, so yeah. It appears that he did, in fact, um, let's see, I'm reading it right now. Um, yeah, so it looks like he said, yeah, well, we didn't have Aeneas Smith. We didn't have our left tackle. We didn't have our left guard. We didn't have McKinley Jackson. We didn't have Shamar James. I mean, Shamar Turner. That's not, we've been shorthanded all year. We, look, we don't look for qualms, and he won't either. I know Nick. He ain't. Going to look for no qualms. The comment that fired up fans came when Fisher added, we were playing a backup quarterback too. Oh, no. Because as fans will remind you, Haynes King started the year and was benched following the Appalachian State loss. So he was a backup because Jimbo made him a backup. Oh, Jimbo. It's just crazy to me how a lot of people thought for better or for worse in this case, that the COVID year was a disqualifier because if teams played bad, hey, it's COVID. But does it mean that if teams played good, that was also an outlier? Because Texas A&M's best year under Jimbo is that 9-1 campaign in the SEC during the COVID year. Mind you, their one loss to Alabama was still by 28 points that year. And they shouldn't have been in the playoff because they lost by 28 to the number one team. However... 
at what point does it become clear that outside of that, Texas has been very average under Jimbo Fisher, very below average. They've been worse than they were under Kevin Sumlin, which is a crazy thing to think about. As bad as Kevin Sumlin was at Arizona after Texas A&M, as good as Kevin Sumlin was for two years and then bad after that once Johnny Manziel left, it's crazy that the team has essentially taken so many steps backwards. They had the best recruiting class in the country, and they're still 3-3. Three and three. And a bad 3-3, three and three too, by the way. Their offense is just lifeless. Ladies and gentlemen, this season, Florida State is a whopping... Oh, they've given up 19 sacks, it looks like. And they are... This can't be right. No, that's not right. Why is the CBS? CBS is showing me stats that aren't even a thing. They were 37% on third down last year. Let's see what they were this year because CBS is showing me their season stats from last year for no reason. I don't really know what the issue is there. All right. We're going on Google right now. Again, this is where I wish I had somebody else, but it's okay. So we're going to this year. They are 3-3. Three and three. Their offense is 109th in the country in scoring. Hey, their defense is 28th. So that's good, I guess. Let's see if we can get some third down stats. Are there any things here? Come on, where's... Really? Really? Nothing? I'm trying here, guys. I really am. Okay, yeah, nothing on their third down conversions. That doesn't really help me at all. Okay, well, is there maybe like game logs? Would that show their third down conversions? No, it didn't. Well, thank you very much, CBS, because without that, I can't look it up. And I don't want to go game by game because that would be very, very difficult. And I don't want to do that. But Texas A&M, they're 3-3, three and three, and the schedule's not getting any easier. They've got a South Carolina team that just won. They've got a break before they play South Carolina on the 22nd. Then they got Ole Miss. And, I mean, with the, with the back end being LSU, UMass, Auburn, Florida, and South Carolina, Ole Miss, they could still – get to 8-4, and four, which is crazy because LSU, I mean, Lord have mercy, they did not look good this weekend. But they could still get to 8-4 and four and Jimbo could still be here because his buyout is, mind you, $85 million. That is why you don't give somebody a 10-year contract extension because then they can't, you can't get rid of them. And Texas A&M cannot do anything about Jimbo Fisher. And then lastly, Tennessee playing... Alabama next week after a win over LSU, a win over Florida, probably the biggest game between Tennessee and Alabama in years, the one people actually think Tennessee can win. But, ladies and gentlemen, I'm not convinced. I really am not. Do I think the rebuild by Josh Heupel at Texas A&M is great? Or Texas A&M, excuse me, Tennessee is great? Yes, I do. I think he's done a great job. I also think they've beaten a lot of bad teams this year. I don't think Florida's very good. I don't think LSU's very good. And I do not think that Penn State is very good. Not Penn State, excuse me, Pittsburgh. Lord have mercy, y'all. I need to get some more sleep before my next show, apparently, because we're all over the place. So with that in mind, I mean, Pittsburgh, as good as they are, they lost Georgia Tech, right? Don't forget about that. Florida, as good as they are, as good as they apparently are, as big of a win as that was, they have also lost to a Kentucky team. That now, without Will Levis, looks a lot different, but still. Be convinced about that as you will. I personally am not. And then you've got LSU, which is not a good football team. 
they are not. I don't know how the heck they beat Mississippi State to start the year. I really don't, considering what the run Mississippi State is on right now. But Tennessee and Alabama, you know, I'll I'll believe it when I see it. I'll believe that this rivalry is going to be good when it actually happens. Because for too many times have I fallen for the CBS hype music and all that just to be disappointed by yet another performance from the Volunteers against Alabama. And with that, we will be back. After this, this is Compact Discourse on Weagle 91.1 FM from the Bradley-based WEGL studio. We're going to go on to the NFL next, and I'm going to try my best to not lose my mind talking about a certain team that uh, supports the commies. Go Washington commies. Just kidding, Washington commanders. But this is Compact Discourse on Weagle 91.1 FM. I'm Alex Houston. We'll be back right after this. And we're back. This is Compact Discourse on Weagle 91.1 FM. Alex Houston, once again going solo. I think I'm going to change my last name to Solo. That's a joke that only Davis will get if he's listening. If he's not, that's very unfortunate. But you know what? Let's move on from college football, mainly because I want to move on from college football. And I'm sure the rest of you do, too. I've been talking about it for far too long, I imagine. So why don't we go ahead and go check out the NFL scoreboard. A lot happened. A lot. A lot. Let's talk about it right now here on Weagle 91.1 FM. So where to begin but in London? London calls and the New York Giants answer. The Giants are 4-1 and and they beat the Green Bay Packers 27-20. What has happened to Green Bay? They were favored by nine, but the Packers just don't have the offense that they used to. Buffalo annihilates Pittsburgh. Kenny Pickett's first start does not go well as the Bills beat the Steelers 38-3. The Chargers beat Cleveland in a close one, 30-28. Looks like L.A. was glad to be finally out of Ohio. The Houston Texans get their first win over the of the year over the Jacksonville Jaguars. They're now 1-3-1 after a 13-6 win in one of the worst divisions in all of football, the AFC South. The Minnesota Vikings beat the Chicago Bears. When it's not prime time, Kirk Cousins shows up and shows out. They won 29-22. The New England Patriots destroy the Detroit Lions. The Lions had the best offense in the league, but now I don't think they do as the Patriots won 29-0. The New Orleans Saints, behind Andy Dalton and Taysom Hill duo, defeated the Seahawks 39-32. The New York Jets destroyed the Miami Dolphins. The Dolphins lost two quarterbacks two concussions and had to use their third string Skylar Thompson and they could not win as the Jets won 40 to 17. The Buccaneers beat the Atlanta Falcons under suspicious circumstances 21 to 15. A roughing the passer call on Grady Jarrett changed the game and we all disagreed with it. The Tennessee Titans beat the Washington Commanders. The Commanders started 1-0. They have now lost four straight after losing 21 to 17. The San Francisco 49ers invaded Bank of America Stadium in more than one way. A sea of red saw their Niners destroy the Panthers 35-15. The Matt Rule era is off to a great start. (laughs) The Philadelphia Eagles defeated the Arizona Cardinals 50-17. The Eagles 5-0, Nick Sirianni with a great team right now. Meanwhile, the Cardinals just cannot figure it out, especially when Call of Duty is having a great weekend for Kyler Murray. 
The Dallas Cowboys beat the Rams? What is happening to LA and more importantly, what is happening in Dallas? Cooper Rush gets another victory, even though he only threw 16 passes as the Cowboys won 22 to 10. And then the Baltimore Ravens beat the Cincinnati Bengals off a Justin Tucker game-winning field goal. Tucker, I believe, is 25 of 26 on game winners in his career. One of the most absurd stats I've ever seen. He might just be the best kicker of all time. And tonight, Monday Night Football, another bad one. Kansas City takes on the Las Vegas Raiders at 7.15 p.m. Central Time. The Chiefs are looking to go 4-1, while the Raiders look to avoid a 1-4 start to the year. And who can forget what we're getting next Thursday? Chicago versus Washington on Amazon. I, myself, can wait for that game. What a performance it will be from both teams. And that is your NFL scoreboard. And man, a lot to dissect here, a lot to break down, a lot to discuss. I don't really know what happened this weekend. The, the Detroit Lions have had a great offense all year. But then they scored zero? I don't know if the Bill Pelichick defense knows what it's doing. And again, going down this list right here, you got the Tampa Bay game. I think you all probably saw the video by now. Tom Brady sacked in what looked like a normal football play. He then gets up and complains and gets a roughing the passer call and wins the game because of it. I'm pretty sure the NFL called that one because they didn't want the Bucks at 2-3 and three to start the year. But, I mean, what a just terrible, terrible call. It was a football play. Unnecessarily throwing the quarterback to the ground. What are you supposed to do? Two-hand touch them? Seriously. What does it mean to unnecessarily throw the quarterback to the ground when you have to make a tackle? You have to make a tackle. But I don't even know, man. I At this point, I've kind of given up with the NFL and their absurd rules. I understand it. Heck, I've agreed with it. You don't want what's happened to Tua to happen to every other player. You want to make sure that concussions are taken care of and treated so that it does not hurt these players later in life. That's fair. That's great. But the fact of the matter is the NFL is addressing it in almost the wrong ways, making quarterbacks untouchable. Which honestly, here, here, put to put on your tinfoil hat for a second, is the NFL doing that because they really care about that, or because quarterbacks are the faces of the league? Did they change that? Did they make the Aaron Rodgers rule because they were really worried about Aaron Rodgers' health, or because they recognized they lost a star that year? Just a thought. I'm gonna say that, and I'll say it further. The problem, as we've clearly seen, is not in the rules; it's in the concussion protocol, or the fact that there seemingly wasn't one for Tua Tagovailoa, and we saw how that worked out. So clearly just absolutely madness there. But, man, I'll talk about it for two seconds. First of all, um, I have a message from Griggs, my co-host, who couldn't make it today. He said, Griggs wants, or I should just say, Griggs wants Matt Rule fired before he lands in Columbus coming back from fall break. Interesting. So I don't know if Griggs is back in Columbus, but um, we'll have to see how that unfolds. And, again, the Matt Rule era, David Tepper fired – Ron Rivera saying, we do not settle for mediocrity. Since then, the Panthers, I believe, are 11-33. and 33. Mind you, that means they've won a fourth of all of their games. So that's pretty incredible, isn't it? But that'll have to do it here for Compact Discourse on Weagle 91.1 FM. I thank you all for joining and listening to the show today. I hope you enjoyed it. This is the, one of the first times I've ever done a show by myself. I think it might be the only time, and I tried, I tried my best, you know, spice it up. But hey... Auburn Volleyball 16-1, and that's something to be excited about here on the Plains. I'm Alex Houston, and for everyone that might be here in the future, 
This is Compact Discourse. We'll have Logan hosting the show tomorrow at 8 a.m., so don't don't go anywhere for that one. And we also got the shout-out coming up next, so stick right with us, and Weagle will be right back after a short break, and we'll see you then. <laughs>